I'd like to thank all those that made our worship part of the Debbie and Marilyn, Julie. I appreciate their gifting. And uh, thank you, Benefields, for, for sharing the reading of the scriptures. Is there uh, anyone who, from your spot, would like to pray specifically for the proclamation of the word this morning? Anyone at all? Not everybody raise your hand. Brother David, thank you. Amen. Over the last several weeks, um, the Lord has probably did more work in my life in a short period of time than, than any time I can remember in, in least recent history. Um, after I preached last week, uh, I woke up Monday morning with a strong sense, a uh, very strong impression that the message that I have before you uh, should be delivered. And uh, so I quickly sent a, a couple of emails out and just said, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so if you'll pray for me, uh, I know you do, and I pray that God would use this, uh, this message. The title of the message is How to Handle Conflict Biblically. How to Handle Conflict Biblically. The world is full of conflicts. Our American history is not immune to conflicts. I... Uh, I'm not a, a history student by nature. I love history, but so if I, hit, if I get a few facts wrong here, uh, just give me grace. But one of the most infamous conflicts in American history is the Hatfield and McCoys. And you can go home and you can Google these things and you can see them, but basically it, it, it centered around uh, two families. And um, it involved a, a stray pig it involved the, a girl, a McCoy girl, marrying a Hatfield man. It involved murder it, it, and killing. And it was a feud in the 1860s. I think it started in 1865, where it, it, the onset of the feud was a, a man was killed, according to what I saw, while hiding in a cave, and that set it off. You've heard about the Hatfield and the McCoys. And although we talk about that, I would not do any justice to my son-in-law and mamaw if I didn't mention one of the most uh, conflicted counties in America, Clay County, Kentucky. As a matter of fact, if I didn't know this until Josh entered our family, but the feuds of Clay County are bigger and much more infamous, but they don't get the notoriety as the Hatfields and McCoys. There's a couple of things that happened in Clay County, and that's where Josh hails from, and that's where Pam's from. The Baker and White feud was huge. And I tried to get a synopsis of what happened, and there is so many things going on in that feud that there was a doctor who lost his mind, and they were going to try to he, they, they were going to try to try him for murder, and he moved to Cuba, and then he came back, and then 
one family said, if you go kill, I'll give a bunch of people $10,000. And it, as someone was testifying, someone is, is shot. I mean, it's just crazy. I read one thing that said over 100 people were killed. And, and that wasn't even, the half of the McCoys didn't lose. There wasn't 100 lives lost. But in this feud, according to what I read, there was over 100 people. And still, I can't tell you what it was really over. Um, then there was the cattle wars. Did you guys know about the cattle wars? Um, the cattle wars were literally what it was said. It was two warring factions over cattle. And, and so what happened was one person killed some cattle of one guy, and he came and retaliated and killed their cattle. And, and they sent for the state militia, and they were, they were slow in getting there. And... Um, on August 5th, 1807, in the Clay County Courthouse, John Amos, who was, the, it was between John Amos and William Strong, John Amos was shot to death while testifying in the way they were going to resolve it. Someone came up and shot them to death. There was a reverend, his name was Reverend Dickey. In 1897, I want to read this about the Clay County, Kentucky, where my the, the DNA of my grandson is from my grandson. So I sat back there. I want to listen to what a reverence the pastor said. He said this. He said, most nights since I have been here have been made of hideous by the yells of drunken men and the noise of the revolvers. Some nights hundreds of shots have been fired. While I'm riding tonight, the crack of the rifle is heard making a startling report. Drunken men are seen on the streets daily along the highways leading to town. The law is not enforced against shooting on the highway nor against drunkenness. Now this is 1897. There is no fear of the law or of its officers. He ends his journal entry this day. Might is right here. The weak must yield to the strong. Well, a lot of things now make sense, Josh. <laughs> Not only are there feuds in our country, there's church conflict. And so I just thought I would share. Tom Rayner did a, a story in a magazine from a Twitter, a bunch of tweets that he was sent. I'm not going to read all of them, but let me give you a few things that churches kind of get their trucks wrapped around to pull on. I'm sure this would be one uh, for me, but a church argument and a vote decided if the clock in the worship center should be removed. I guarantee you the pastor or the preacher thought the church should remove the clock, and I guarantee you there was some of the congregation that thought it shouldn't be. Major conflict with the youth group because they borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. There was another church that argued whether or not you should allow deviled eggs at the church pitch-in. There was a church split over whether who could have access to the church copier. Some church members left another church because someone hid the vacuum cleaner from them. We wouldn't want to vacuum the Lord's house. I thought this would be fitting for our congregation. There was a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. Well, those are just a few of the dumb things churches fight about. What about marriages? I found a thing that gave three of the stupidest reasons I found 
in this list for a divorce. Here's what one person said. They said, I had a client file for divorce because every morning his wife would ask him how he would take his coffee. Another one said that there was a divorce filed because he would not help her put up a shower curtain. And finally, I thought this was interesting. A guy texted or tweeted, said, my, my boss's wife just filed for divorce because he used too much toilet paper. She was a super thrifty coupon lady and, would, and even listened when he was in the bathroom to see if he was using too much toilet paper. Well, there's biblical examples of conflict. There was the very first in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother because he was jealous. Then there was the conflict of Joseph and his brothers. Then Peter and Paul over, over circumcisions in Galatians chapter 2. Do you realize that Paul and Barnabas had a conflict over a man by the name of John Mark, the author of the book of the Gospel of Mark? There was a conflict or a tension between Jesus and Peter, if you remember. And that's one of the greatest restoration stories in all of Scripture. And Jake, it wouldn't be a sermon if I didn't go to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, between Euodi and Seneca, were two women. We have no idea what the conflict was, but Paul tells them in Philippians chapter 4, they're mentioned by name in verse 2, to be of the same mind. What I'm trying to do is show us that there's disagreements and conflicts at every level. I tried to show some silly examples to bring some levity. But let me just tell you, conflicts can be destructive and deadly. None of us here are exempt from conflicts. And God's word has something to say about it. The reason I brought this up is because what does anger do? Anger is usually bringing a conflict or anger is because a conflict happens. So I want to give you just a few goals for this message. We're going to look carefully with great detail at this book of Ephesians and in doing so this is what's happened. I want us to keep in mind that we're operating under the premise that's preaching and studying through a scripture text verse by verse or chapter by chapter is beneficial because you can't leave anything out. I attempt, and so do the other gentlemen that preach here, attempt to be expositional in our messages. That means we try to let this passage speak for itself. Today, we're looking at conflict. It's more of a topical address. But we're going to turn to the Word of God, and I want to remind us one more time this morning that we are people of the book. Really, what we want to know is what the book says, because we believe the Bible is adequate for life and godliness. We believe that this is the best day of the week, the Lord's day. We believe that God's people should gather together in spirit and truth on this day. We believe that the gathering of this people is the, represents the good news of Jesus Christ. We are a witness to the outside world. We believe that God is calling all of us to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe there's no other name under heaven and earth by which man can be saved. So what am I trying to say? We believe it's all about Jesus. And I believe, and I went through all of that, because I believe in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. 
He's talking about the greatness and the grandeur and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. We came to chapter 4 and verse 1, and he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you or implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. In other words, to live the life that Christians should live. Paul's calling us to live what we believe. Let me just say this. Can we all agree that living the Christian life is hard, difficult, and seemingly impossible? I think it is. Well, the good news is that our Heavenly Father gave us an advocate or a helper, the Holy Spirit, to encourage and enable and empower us to live this life. You see, what I'm trying to say to us this morning is you can't live the Christian life on your own, in your own power, without help from the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at sinful anger. And this week, I'm taking almost the entire message straight from, I'm stealing the content. The man's name's Ken Sandy. The book is called The Peacemaker. And so I've adapted this message according to his book, and I've condensed it down. He says that conflict can glorify God. It can serve others by helping us bear their burdens and confronting them in love. And it can help us to grow in Christ-likeness by confessing sin and turning from attitudes that promote conflict. This morning, the message has four points. Glorify God, get the log out of your eye, gently restore, go and reconcile. Four principles that help us live a life in a manner worthy of how God's called us. The first principle, at the heart of everything we do, glorify God. The Westminster Catechism said, what is the, the, it's a question answer. It says, what is the chief end of man? And if you don't know any of the other questions, it's, it's quoted almost across all denominations and almost from all types of people. What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Where did they get that? Well, the Lord's Prayer is one of those places. Do you remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, let make your name great. And when we end, we end that prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and what? The, for how long? Forever. In our text this morning, that was read to us from 1 Corinthians, it says to do everything for the glory of God. Now, we're not talking just about this hour on Sunday morning. And for those of you, this one hour out of the 168 is just 0.59% of your week. So you don't spend a lot of time in this public setting. So what God is really after is all the other 99.5% of our time. And what Paul is telling the church at Corinth is, we should glorify God in everything we do. And really, that's a sermon in and of itself. And I just want to stop and ask you, is that your heart's desire? That was the song that we were singing this morning. It's my heart's desire. So when conflict, and maybe none of you have conflict, But it seems that there's not a day that goes by that there's not some conflict. 
in my life? What should we do? Sandy says the very first thing that we should ask ourselves is how can I please and honor the Lord in this situation? You know, as I get older, I, I realize that that should be the first question of just about everything that pops up in my life. You know, when if I get upset at some, someone, if I would just stop and say, how can I honor the Lord in this situation? You can glorify God in the midst of conflict or struggle by trusting him, obeying him, and imitating him. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. So the best way to honor God is to ask, how can you glorify him? So what's the takeaway this morning from the very first principle? Here's the takeaway. As I, as I think through things, I think about Matthew 22. Do you remember when the Pharisee asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember how he answered it? He said, there's two things, that, there's, there's one thing you should do, and then he added one. He said, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's why we read Deuteronomy. That's the Shema. That's how every temple service would start. If you were a, 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 if you're a Hebrew this morning in the temple, they're, they're, they're citing that as their call to worship. And that call to worship says, Hear, O Israel, our Lord God is one, and we shall love him with all of our heart. And when Jesus was asked that question, he said, You should also do it. And how do you love God? You do it not only vertically, but horizontally. Do you get it? God's about two relationships. He cares about our vertical relationship and about our horizontal relationship. The second principle, get the log out of your own eye. If you have your Bibles, one of those passages is Matthew 7. Again, I'm going to reference these and we'll move on. Matthew chapter 7 is one of the misquoted Bible verses or sections in all of all the quoting of Bible. I hate to hear this one quoted. People say this, you should not judge. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say you should not judge. The Bible says that the way you judge others, it will be judged, you will be judged by the same measure. In other words, by the yardstick you apply to other people, they're going to apply that same yardstick back to you. And Jesus is being comical here because as the text read, it said, judge not that you be not judged. And then he says, here's what we should do. We should get the log out of our eye before we can get the speck out of someone else. Do you see? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost laughable. He's saying, you got this big plank coming out of your eye. There's no way I can help Jake get the speck out of his eye because I got this big beam out of my eye. And every time I go to help him, I'm just going to bludgeon him to death even more. And so what Jesus says is when we are in conflict with one another, the very first thing we should do is remove the log. Well, Sandy, again, Ken Sandy says there's two types of logs. He says the first log is to make sure that we don't have a critical, negative, or overly sensitive attitude that's straight from his material. He's saying that the first thing we should do is look at ourselves and make sure we're not critical and we're not negative and we're not overly sensitive. One of the best ways to do that is to spend time, Jake, again, Philippians 4, 2 through 9. There's a reason I go there. Do you, you, if you don't know that, just go back and read Philippians again. It's a, great it's a great way to check our attitude. And you remember those lists of think, think on these things, the things that are good and lovely and virtuous and of good report. 
So when I'm in conflict with one another, I do a self-examination and I say, is, is my life in line with that? The second log is to make sure we're not sinful with our words and actions. We're often blind to our own sin. I thank God that I have family and friends who challenge me to make sure that my heart's right. Now, I don't always like it. And those of you around me know that sometimes I don't. But what I'm saying to you is that sometimes we need people in our lives to speak truth in our life and love. I think that was preached in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 15. Sometimes we need people to come to us in love and just say, hey, you are a little off here. You see, conflict is often fueled by good desires, but we elevate it to sinful demands. Again, I want to quote Sandy. He says, the most important aspect of getting the log out of your own eye is to go beyond your confession of wrong behavior and face up to the root cause of that behavior. And guess what he believes the root cause is? It's what we talked about with anger. It's idolatry. It's setting ourselves on the throne of our hearts. It's when we put our wants and our wishes above everybody else. And so when we go, when we go, we need to make sure we've got the log out of our eye because if we don't, we're going to only make it worse because idolatry leads to conflict with God and idolatry leads to conflict with other people. There are three basic steps. You can ask God to see where you're guilty of this. Worship of the wrong worship. The second, you can identify and renounce those desires. And the third, pursue right worship. It's the heart of the matter. You would know who I'm talking about, but over the last month or so, I've had a discussion with someone raising a teen. And in that discussion, they've talked about as they were addressing a teenage problem through some counseling and discipleship, they came to understand that it was their heart that needed checked. And once they started to understand their heart and get their heart in the right manner, then they could help their teen address those issues that were obviously issues that a parent needs to address. And so as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about that example. When the girls were little, I had a, I've mentioned him many, many times, I, I had a mentor, his name was Woody Church, and I would call him with all kinds of issues. And I remember trying to parent and get it right, and, and there were some times that things were tough, and I remember what he said to me. He said, Tim, this is more about you than it is about the girls. And Courtney knows I've said that to her before now. I've passed that wisdom on. What Woody was talking to me about is when we have conflict, we just need to make sure. There's, there's things that we should be upset about. There's things that we should, should address. There's things that need not go unchecked. But the Bible's very clear in Matthew 7, we need to get our hearts right. 
And I, if there's one place I fail, oh, I'll glorify God, I say, but this is the place that's so easy to miss. The third principle is to gently restore. If we glorify God and if we get the log out of our eye, then we need to address the speck in our brother's or sister's eye. And by the way, let me say this before I forget it. When I say brother or sister, I don't necessarily mean me and David. I think we forget that in a Christian home, husbands and wives are brothers and sisters in Christ. So when I talk about conflict, I'm not necessarily talking about conflict among church people, like, like not in the same family. I'm, I'm, this is how to handle conflict in your family. If you have children that have professed Christ and are Bible-believing, saved individuals, you now are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this, too, is how you should parent. And so most of the time, the conflict that we have are with the people closest to us. So if we're glorifying God, if we're checking our heart and making sure we're right, then we can go and restore. Now, there, I didn't see, so this is, this is Tim's thoughts. I, I'm being like Paul here. I want you to be a Berean. I want you to make sure I'm right. But I've given a lot of thought. What about people you have conflict that aren't, they are not believers. There's nothing in their life that would demonstrate. Maybe they've even been, they even reject Christ. They, they've told you they're not a Christian. What should we do about that person? Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor. Well, here's some things I'd like to offer us to think about. Biblical principles are always profitable even when the other person isn't. So in other words, it's always right to follow God's way. Is, that a, is there an amen there? Just one amen, okay. We still need to glorify God, right? So that's what we should do. 1 Peter 4, 8. I love to cite this verse when I've sinned. Do you guys know what it is? Love shall cover a multitude of sin. So I quote that often to Kim. Another thing is that when we are in conflict with someone who doesn't know Christ, it may be an example or a time to, for us to share the gospel and show them what forgiveness is about so we can lead them to Christ and then be reconciled. We still need to make sure our heart is right before the Lord. But there's two things I think that we all need to come, in, come to grips with. If you're going to follow Jesus, John 15, Luke 21, Matthew 10 says that the Lord, the world is going to hate you. I know that's, I know that's not a big encouragement, but the truth is if you're going to do what's right, the outside world isn't going to like you. They're going to tell you how bad you are and how wrong you are. You're just going to have to come to grips with that. And Jesus says, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. And the second thing is, even for those people, the Bible is clear that we should live at peace with others as far as it depends on us. You may not like me. And that, to be honest with you, that, that bothers me from time to time. I, I live sometimes in fear of man. 
But the truth is, I can't do anything about it other than check my heart and try to glorify God and do what's right. And if you don't, if you've got a problem with me, that's, that's your issue. So I need to apply Romans 12. And I, I would say this to a, a, a non-believing co-worker. Romans 12, 12 through 18, you can go home and read it. But verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. In other words, don't do something for them to have these conflicts with you. To the best of your ability, do what's right. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, I, I, I want to read these three verses because I have missed them. It says, first of all, then I urge you that supplication, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those who are in high positions. So we're just supposed to pray for our leaders even if we don't agree with them. Why? That we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Wow. But what do we do with someone who has offended us or we have problems with and we know they're saved or they're, it's, it's a, whether it's a husband or wife or someone in the church, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 18. This is the go-to text on conflict in the Bible. We're going to take just a few moments here in verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And in the English Standard Version that translation says, alone. Go and tell them alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a biblical concept. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be, a Gentile, be asked to you as a Gentile or tax collector. This is a progressive um, process, and it's very simple. If someone has done something wrong to you, the very first thing you should do is tell the Lord, but then you should tell them privately. One of the things that we all struggle with, and I, don't, I think I'm going to use this all, is we love to tell other people about our problems with somebody else. The Bible says that's gossip. I'm guilty of the sin. I pray that the Lord would speak to your heart if you are. Even about, I've, I've even caught myself, I could do it with, say, with Kim and I. And, and I, just using my own family is easy because I'm taking, a, I'm pointing the fingers back at me. But, and I've done this. I, I do this. I'll be upset at Kim and I'll make a, a, a comment to Courtney or Emily about it. Well, that's not right. It's not biblical. I should just go to Kim. We could go privately. Why? Because if I've got a problem, not easy to use Brother David, if I've got a problem with Brother David and I go to him privately and he repents, nobody else knows about it but him and me and Jesus. But if I've told Josh and if I told Darren and if I, if I told Larry, then, then all of a sudden now we all know about it. There's another step, though. What happens if they don't? Then you take someone. 
It's for protection. So you can validate what's going on. And then if that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. Why would we have church discipline? Because one of the things that we must guard in this fellowship is the authenticity of what is going on here. And when you, when you, uh, when you ta- tell it to the church, that's a radical statement. It's a radical process. But it warns others that this isn't acceptable. And it, brings, it shows how restoration and restoration can come in and demonstrate the forgiveness of Christ. But let's not talk about church discipline yet. Let's go back up. And there's a thing that I want you to see here in Matthew 18. Right before he talks about sinning brothers and sisters against one another, do you know what he just tells them? He tells them about the lost sheep. The 99 are there and there's one that went away. What's the whole point of that? The point is to go and gather the sheep, who, who, which is the shepherds, to bring them back in the fold and restore them. That's why this third principle is to gently restore. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in this regard is Galatians chapter 6. Ephesians, it's right before you get to Ephesians. If you want to turn to Galatians, it may be something you want to underline in your Bible. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Let me read that for us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then there's a warning. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Another warning. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is one of the greatest... This is to me one of the images of the church. It says that if... It says that if I've got a problem and Brother Jason comes and he, he corrects me, he's helping me, get, he's helping me live this life. But there's, there's another thing that says, it says if my burden is too heavy, he comes and, and, and this is an image of a knapsack. And, and in, in biblical times, people, people were, were a little more nomadic than they are today. And so they had their belongings and they typically carried their belongings with them. And so every family would have a, a burden, a, a, an amount to carry. And the image here, as that was explained to me, is when that burden, when that, all that stuff gets a little too heavy to carry, there are people who can come around you and lift you up and help carry your burdens. Like the 99 that were there, the shepherd went and got the one. That sheep was, had a burden. And what's, what's some of the pictures of that? Is, is the sheep around Jesus' neck? Have you seen those pictures? Those images that in somebody's mind has created the shepherd carrying the, the lost sheep back? Well, that's, that's what conflict can do. It can restore us. And I know, I, I feel it, it's... Not exactly probably why some of you wanted to to come to church today. But let me just say this to you before we we close and and, uh, I'm almost done. What I'm talking about, if we get right, will communicate something to the outside world that we have something so different 
that they want to be a part of. That's why God created the church. He wants the church to be this place of forgiveness and restoration and growth. Marriages. I remember I was a part of a fellowship one time where I heard a testimony of a husband and wife say that their Sunday school class prayed for their marriage and and people would actually go and talk to them about their marital problems in order to to restore them. And I've been in a service where they stood up and testified to how grateful they were for those people in their lives. Only in the church, right? It's amazing. We've, we've, since 1960, we went, we've got all kinds of counseling degrees. Uh, counseling has, has taken off like wildfire and people have more problems and can't deal with life more now than ever. Why? Because we aren't doing it the biblical way. So before you go to someone, let me give you, Sandy gives four questions you should ask. Is this offense seriously dishonoring God? Has it damaged the relationship? Is it hurting other people? Or is it seriously hurting the offender himself? If you can answer yes to any of those, then you're to go. How do you go quickly? Pray for humility and wisdom. Plan your words. Anticipate reaction. Choose the right time. Listen carefully. Speak to build up. Ask for feedback. Recognize your limits, Sandy says. And finally, the fourth principle, go and be reconciled. I've kind of alluded to it. One of the most unique features of Christianity is forgiveness and reconciliation. Even though though, uh, Christians have experienced the grace, forgiveness in the world, we are sometimes the one that fail to show it to others. One of the things, and I I alluded to it maybe in in a funny way or the way I preached on anger last week, but one of the things that saddens me is, is the way Christians treat each other. I alluded to that about myself when I said the windows were open in my home. How, how I treat Kim and how I've treated Kim, I, there's, there's, there's a lot there that I'm not proud of. But I'm grateful for, for the way God's grace has been in our lives cover up our disobedience with shallow statement Ken, Sandy says it says I forgive her but I don't want to have anything else to do with her that's not Christian I've heard people say that well I, I can love them God loves them but I just just not going to mess with them I've said that well there's a different way the Bible says forgiveness in Ephesians 4 At the very end of it, it says, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. I'm going to end with this because I think this is where we, how we're reconciled. I want to talk about biblical forgiveness for just a moment. There are four things that biblical forgiveness does. And by the way, biblical biblical forgiveness is a a transaction. It's it's something that you, you decide to do. It's not a feeling. You make a decision not to dwell on the incident. You make a decision not to bring up that incident again against that person. You make a decision not to talk about that incident with others. And you make a decision not to let that incident or conflict stand between 
your personal relationship. I have to give you a, a funny story. It may not be funny to you. It was funny to me. Um, Kim and I had a discussion this morning prior to church, and I made a statement, and I said, well, why, why did you have to make that statement? And, and she said, uh, just like the times you say this and that, and she was going back in the Chronicles of Time. And we, my point is, we, we, bring, we do that all the time, and it's wrong. It's just wrong. If I've offended her, if I've asked her for forgiveness, she's to bury it beneath the blood of Christ and let it go. I wonder how many marriages would be better if we let things go once they've been reconciled. I wonder how many parental relationships with kids or kids with their, or siblings would, would be, would be uh, better if we would just not hold grudges against people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Love keeps no records of wrongs. Remember, you're forgiven. And the power that you have to forgive others is a demonstration of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Someone's sitting here, well, what if I go and forgive them and they still hate me? Live peaceably with others as much depends on you. Well, what if I forgave them and they did it again? Jesus said to Peter, how many times should I forgive? 70 times 70. Now that's not 490. It's a perfect number times a perfect number times a perfect number. In other words, he was telling Peter, just keep forgiving. And Peter's like, well, how can I do that? Again, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a little bit of a teaching. I can sense the tone in the room. But I'm praying that God will do something in our lives because I figured out in the last couple of weeks, if I can just continue to work on my anger and if I can just address conflict in a biblical manner, life seems to be different for me. I hope for you too. As we conclude, what are the takeaways? We're sinful people living in a sinful world and we'll have to address sinful people and they'll do sinful things. The word of God gives us all we need to deal with these people and with ourselves. There may be someone here this morning that needs to go and reconcile with someone. Oh, they're never going to come ask you to forgiveness. They're never going to come and deal with this issue themselves. They're just not there. But it may be you. It may be you because you've been here listening to this message that go and maybe you'll be the spark that the Lord will use. God may see that we need to heed the living, loving rebuke of a brother or sister in our lives. The church body of Christ, the family of God, is different than any other place in the world. And we need to make sure we're a demonstration of the gospel. It really is about God's glory and the love for others. Tertullian was a early Christian writer and he quoted a pagan official when they asked about what makes Christians so different and you've heard this and I'm done he says what makes them so different is look at how much 
they love each other. Look at how much they love each other. So my question to you, is that true of your Christ-centered home? Can that say about, be said about you, dad, mom? Look how much they love each other. Can that be said about our church? When people walk in here, could they say, look at how much they love each other? That love only can come from Christ. Father, I pray as we sing our closing hymn that you will do a work in our heart. Lord, I'm trusting you. It's been a very difficult message. It's probably resonating in some hearts about some things that they need to address. I just pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will have his way.